Dionysian Revival, Reflections on the Bacchae by Euripides, and William Golding's Lord of the Flies by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 3. I'm going to do two things. I'm going to apologize for suggesting that you go see the movie Cabaret. And then I'm going to say how well spent the time was, in a way. I mean, I found it tremendously painful to watch, partly because I was realizing all the while how much of it that I didn't recognize the first time I saw it. It's based on the Berlin Stories by Christopher Isherwood. That's an interesting background issue, which I know very little about, but Isherwood and W.H. Auden were in Berlin in the 30s, and they both got out of there. In the course of the next few years, both of them left their Marxism behind. Isherwood, for a kind of Aldous Huxley, Eastern mysticism, psychedelic drug experimentation, and Auden for Christianity. But before that change came upon Isherwood, he wrote this story about Sally Bowles, and it was then made into the musical cabaret. So I suggested you go see it, and then I saw it, and I thought, oh, my friends are going to be so angry with me for having subjected them to this. It's like some of the other things that we're subjected to here. You know, I have to say this. This is my theme. The prologue to the Gospel of John says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. And I take that to mean, among other things, not just that the light cannot be quenched by the darkness, but that as a result of the crucifixion, the darkness itself becomes an agent for the revelation. So that we shouldn't shy away too much, although we don't want to get stuck in it either. We shouldn't shy away too much from those dark realities in our world that will bring us to a visceral experience of what it is the Christian tradition is trying to save us from. I would include the movie The Cabaret in in that. So anyway, I prescribed it as part of the course, and I, I subjected myself to it. And I realized that it was a parable about the crisis of culture. But what I didn't realize is that its parabolic relevance was even more profound than I had remembered it, so much so that, that it was painful to sit through. I now want to just underscore why it was maybe worth it after all. The story takes place in Berlin, 1931. You see, now It's now part of our study, which is the Bakke and the Lord of the Flies and this little interlude with the cabaret. It takes place in Berlin, 1931. It depicts an utter moral vacuum into which everyone gets drawn regardless of how radically disparate their social and cultural backgrounds might be. A spirit of amoral experimentation pervades everything. It is personified by the pathetic and airheaded American singer and dancer, who's played by Liza Minnelli, who is a spiritual casualty whose future as a jaded and washed-up cabaret has been is perfectly and painfully obvious. But every other character in the film shares her spiritual plight and moral emptiness which they all mistake for freedom. There's a Cambridge PhD, a German aristocrat, a publisher of S&M pornographic trash, 
the title of which is The Whip Lady, the leering and lascivious patrons of the Kit Kat Club, and the sleazy pimp who acts as its master of ceremonies. All of that has to do with what I called when we were doing the Baki, the Dionysian program of liberation. This is how we get to be free. Follow the Dionysian program. The music at the Kit Kat Club uh, in the movie The Cabaret is music in which the, there is a obvious breakdown of the distinction between sexuality and violence. The erotic events in the play are all triangular. And there is obvious a very powerful example of the triangular nature of desire to the gender-bending phenomenon. I mean, this play should be seen by sociologists or psychologists. It's a, it's a technical study in some of these phenomena. There is a sacrificial denouement to the play, not recognized as such in the same way that it's not recognized as such in the larger society, perhaps. And that is that Sally Bowles has an abortion in order to keep all the fun and adventures going. The abortion is a kind of symbol in a way or parable for the barrenness of sexuality under the circumstances, barrenness in every sense. In fact, what the abortion allows to continue is Sally Bowles' pathetic substitution of self-exhibition for authentic selfhood. And then, of course, all around the margins of the film and ominously at the end are the Nazi thugs who you realize are going to step in, momentarily step into this moral vacuum and take over. Like the Walpurgis knock in Goethe's Faust, the cabaret is a place where forms of Dionysian intoxication dissolve the moral sensibility that will be sorely missed when the next stage of the Dionysian Revolution arrives and the Nazi thugs take the stage and lead the crowd in a few routines of their own, revealing that the body show the Joel Grey character and his dancing girls put on was only the warm-up act. So I'm going to keep the cabaret there kind of off to the side of study of the Lord of the Flies. And as we hearken back to the, uh, the Baki, We'll also occasionally make some reference to the or to that film. So now to Lord of the Flies. William Golding died just a little over a year ago, and the obituary in the Tablet, a London publication, by a professor emeritus of English, read as follows: William Golding was unmistakably a religious writer, rather in the way that Dostoevsky was not in deliberately evoking God, but in his conviction that human beings have a more than human destiny. Well, in this story, of course, he evokes not God, but the devil. The Lord of the Flies is the translation of the word Beelzebub, which means, which is one of the names of the devil. And it's a study in evil, or you could say in Christian terms, biblical terms, it's a study of the devil. Is there such a thing as the devil? What is the devil? Golding is very quick to get to the point. He wastes no time. I'm going to talk about Homer's Iliad this morning, and 
I'm reminded of that here too, because like Homer, he jumps right into the drama and sets his piece up very quickly. The story begins, there has been a, an atomic exchange of some kinds, very vaguely referred to. Obviously, their civilization is in shambles. And these boys are boys from a British boarding school. They're on an airplane trying to flee the arena in which all of this destruction is taking place. Their plane crashes on a deserted island, and all the adults on board are killed. And the boys come slowly trickling out of the jungle. And the first two to reach the beach, we don't know their names at first. They're just referred to as the fair boy and the fat boy. The two boys are Ralph and Piggy. We never know Piggy's real name. The term Piggy is a term of derision that he has been given in boarding school earlier. One of the first things he does is he says to Ralph, they can call me anything, but just don't let them call me Piggy. And one of the first things Ralph does when all the boys gather is that he betrays Piggy's confidence and refers to him as Piggy, and then they all call him Piggy, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Interestingly enough, Piggy is later given the job of being the taker of names. That is to say, he's supposed to get, every, get all the kids' names and figure out who's who and kind of keep track of everybody. But this term, being the taker of names, he takes the name Piggy, which is the quintessential name of scorn. And also, since the sacrificial business of this novel revolves, in the first instance, around the killing of pigs, He's associated with the sacrificial animal right away, and he is sacrificed later on. Uh, but somebody has to take the name. You see what I mean? Somebody has to be the nigger. Somebody has to be the despised one. So I would say, I don't know whether Golding had this in mind, but the idea that somebody has to take that role, that social role, in order for things to proceed may have been an intentional one. So the fat boy, who's Piggy, says, where's the man with the megaphone? And I think really all I want to talk about this morning is that. Where's the man with the megaphone? Now, Piggy would be one of the first people to have some anxieties in this regard because as he, it becomes absolutely obvious right away and he knows it right away. He is the kind of character on whom the others will turn sooner or later, and from which fate he would be saved by the man with the megaphone. And so he's the first to show some anxiety about whether or not the man with the megaphone is still to be found. Who is the man with the megaphone? Well, he's the headmaster of the school. He's whoever's organizing this, uh, some soldier, no doubt, organizing this uh, evacuation of his children. But for William Golding, clearly, it's something much bigger than that. It's some form of cultural authority, and ultimately, it's God. You see, when this professor emeritus wrote the uh, obituary of William Golding, he said, well, he's, he's a religious writer like Dostoevsky. Well, Dostoevsky's one of his central concerns was, what happens when God is no longer in the picture? See, if there is no God, anything is permissible. Cabaret happens. If there is no God, anything is permissible. Every, so much in Dostoevsky revolves around that 
statement. So where's the man with the megaphone? Well, these kids have landed on an island, and you know, there's no man with the megaphone. And now we're going to see what's going to happen. Now, this also goes back and has some reference to the Baki. Namely, when Pentheus comes back from his trip abroad and he finds out that the whole place is being caught up in the Bacchanalian frenzy, he looks to the two people who should have been the, man, the men with the megaphone, namely Tiresias and old, the old king Cadmus, and they have fallen into it. And all they can do is equivocate and provide some kind of semi-rational justification for their equivocation. Tiresias says, no amount of Bacchic revels could corrupt an honest woman. And the chorus chimes in, congratulating Tiresias on his political correctness, by saying, it's perfectly possible, without shaming Apollo in the least, to worship Bromius, the god of frenzy. In other words, you can have it both ways. There's been a lot of that in our time. The most conspicuous one that I'm aware of right now, at least, comes into my mind, is Norman O. Brown, who for many years retained the notion that it, one could to have both Christ and Dionysus. This is the very notion that Nietzsche rejected right away. Nietzsche saw you couldn't do that. But Norman O. Brown held on to it quite late. I think he's th thrown that notion aside now, but that's very much like Tiresias, the chorus congratulating Tiresias for seeing that you can worship Apollo and Dionysus at the same time. And in the, in the cabaret, the Joel Gray character has the megaphone. Where's the man with the megaphone? Joel Gray in the cabaret is the man with the megaphone. All he's doing is suggesting that everybody let their hair down, engage in this Dionysian project of freedom. But the megaphone will soon enough be snatched away, of course, by the men with the swastikas on their arms, and that's exactly what happens in The Lord of the Flies. Exactly the same thing. The kids are very excited when they first realize that there are no adults. It's kind of funny. Uh, the first realization there's no adults is, Ralph says, uh, there are no adults? on this island? And then he says, there are no adults on this island? <laughs> it seems like this is a recipe for liberty. The man with the megaphone isn't around. So now what? Ralph thinking, now I'm quoting from the novel, Ralph is thinking and he says, as he's thinking, the narrator says to us, here was a coral island protected from the sun, and ignoring Piggy's ill-omened talk, he dreamed pleasantly. Ralph dreamed pleasantly. Piggy, you know, is a little anxious right away because he no doubt has had a history of being the prey of, you know, how sometimes vicious children can be. He's had a history of that. And no doubt the, the, the teacher and headmaster and his, his, his auntie and all the other people in his life have snatched him out of harm's way uh, often enough for him to be looking around for somebody that can perform that function for him. Piggy is fat, he's unathletic, he has asthma, he has glasses so thick that when he takes them off he cannot see, and he speaks the English language very clumsily, as probably few boys in the, in the boarding school do. He's marked as the one, and so He's not uh, nearly as enthusiastic about the discovery no adults are on the island as the other boys initially are, and Ra even Ralph begins to dream pleasantly. Now, now we come back to this. Ralph looks around, and it looks like a coral island, and later on the boys will be saying, 
in their enthusiasm, oh, this is just like Treasure Island. This is just like Coral Island. Coral Island was the name of a, of a novel written by R.M. Ballantyne, which was a ebullient and Rousseau-esque thing about these British boys landing on an island where they're cannibals. And the British boys, of course, with your standard British kind of pluck and determination, civilized the place in a flash. They confront these cannibals and they instruct them in the culinary superiority of wild pigs over human flesh, and pretty soon everything is civilized. You see, William Golding taught school, and in his prose writings, there's a place in which he says, you know, uh, often it's the teacher or headmaster who's the only one that keeps the other boys from descending on one and, and doing real damage. Coral Island was probably in his, in his, you know, the curriculum. And uh, the boys read Coral Island, and he probably had to stand up in front of them and rail against its premises so long that he decided to write a book that would undo it. And now the, the novel Coral Island is nothing but a footnote to this one. It's the same thing with Oscar Essie wrote the Notes from Underground in order to refute the simple-minded uh, theories of somebody whose name I can't remember, whose novel, whose novel I can't remember, but doesn't matter. And this is the same way. This is his way of setting the record straight. What's really involved? Now, the second thing to realize about this is that William Golding is not interested in what might happen if some English schoolboys landed on a deserted island. He's not interested in that because that's very likely not going to happen. And if it did, it would only affect a handful of people. What he's interested in is what is happening right now. Not what might happen if certain dark things on the historical horizon were to come to pass, but what in fact is happening. This is a story about what is happening. And it's very difficult for us to see that because even if we concede that it's a, uh, an insightful analysis of what we humans do under certain very strange circumstances, what we don't see is that those circumstances are now the ones that are prevalent in our world. Where's the man with the megaphone? We now live in a world that is essentially operating under the same set of circumstances that are uh, extant on this island. Now, the other thing is, of course, as this has happened, we have been very slow to dispense with the old Coral Island vision of reality, which is so powerfully passed on to us from Rousseau and all the people that he influenced. You would think after Bosnia, Rwanda, the Nazi thing, and pretty soon you would think it would begin to wear off, and I, I suppose it is beginning to wear off. But there still is a tremendous tendency to marginalize these little things that have with little things, you know, half a million people killed here and there or six million, but there's a tendency to draw a line around these things and to say, oh, well, that was something else. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I, I was saying, well, it, who sort of thought, well, we're, everything is, progress is going along quite nicely. And I said, yeah, but there, we, this is the bloodiest century in the history of the world. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people killed by human violence. One of the responses was, yeah, but you know, a whole lot of that was in World War I. You see what happened? In other words, World War I, draw a little marker around it, and World War I was something, that's exactly what I'm talking about, World War I. You see? 
World War II, World War III, all the things in between, all of that. But in our minds, we tend to mark it off because we're so much under the influence of the Enlightenment bias or the Romantic bias, which are just kind of flip sides of each other, that we mark these things off and we don't see that we're now living in a world that's very much like what he's describing. It's not, we're not living on Coral Island. We never have. One of the reasons I think we can make this assumption is because the biblical mores, which have come down to us through 2,000 years of tradition, against our own prejudices, no doubt, but nevertheless, these biblical mores, they're being eroded at an alarming rate. But still, it's probably true that they are powerful enough for many of us to still make the assumption that they're part of human nature, that we are just hardwired to have certain reservations about certain terrible things or to have certain empathies for those who suffer mis, you know, mistreatment of others and so on and so on. There's nothing, we're not hardwired in that regard at all, but because this tradition has been working on us for as long as it has, we take it for granted. We think this is the way things are. And except you look and you see it when it suddenly it's gone and you see the terrible consequences. So now we're on this island. And remember the question is, where's the man with the megaphone? Well, very shortly, they stumble upon on the beach, Ralph and Piggy stumble upon a conch shell. And Ralph really doesn't know it for what it might be. But Piggy does. Suddenly, Piggy was a bubble with decorous excitement. He's right, it's a shell, he said. I've seen one like that before, on someone's back wall. A conch, he called it. He used to blow it, and his mum would come. It's ever so valuable. Now, Piggy, who's being, who in a, his earlier life was being raised by his aunt and whose mom we know virtually nothing about and whose father is not in the picture at all. Still in all, he talks about his aunt all the time. Piggy's this wonderful character. He, he will say, well, in the midst of all this, look at the ground in disgust and say something like, I'll bet it's already past tea time. <laughs> he clings to these, which he should, to these patterns, the patterns of civilized life. But here he sees this conch for what it might be. You blow this and the mums come, the adults come, the ones who take care of you and fix you your lunch and wipe your nose and so on, they come. And so he's very happy to have found this conch. He can't blow it because he's asthmatic, but he instructs Ralph about how it might be blown. So Ralph through a little experimentation, finally gets the conch to sound its tone. And lo and behold, on hearing it, the boys slowly start to stumble out of the jungle onto the beach. Golding is very cagey. Later on, not very much later on, the boys, all the superstition will return and they will become anxious about things that go bump in the night. And they will begin to say, well, what about the, what about the beast? And uh, what about that snake thing, you know? Just certain movements in the jungle and so on, and all of their 
superstitious imagination comes into play. Golding was very careful to put that, those references, after this passage. In this passage, he tells us who the beast really is. Here's what happens. Within the diamond, quoting from the text, within the diamond haze of the beach, something dark was fumbling along. Ralph saw it first and watched till the intentness of his gaze drew all eyes that way. Then the creature stepped from the mirage onto clear sand, and they saw that the darkness was not all shadow but mostly clothing. The creature was a party of boys marching approximately in step in two parallel lines and dressed in strangely eccentric clothing. It's the choir, and they're dressed in their choir robes. And they have a leader, Jack Meridu, who has organized them. He's a born leader, and he has organized them. And they're marching out of the jungle in step. And in the set, there have been two films made of this novel. The second one, which is not as good as the earlier one, is better in this one respect, and that is as they come onto the beach, they are singing Curie eleison, Christe eleison, Christe eleison, Curie eleison. Christ have mercy, Lord have, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, which is just perfect as the prelude to the, to the story itself. And Jack has organized them in a military fashion. They are a choir, but now they're marching in step, and the military aspect of his leadership begins to emerge instantly. Uh, and he orders the choir to stand still in a very military fashion. And roughly at that point, one of the choir members passes out. And then we have our second marked figure. Piggy is the marked figure for all the reasons that I mentioned before. And the second figure is Simon. And Simon is an epileptic, and he falls out in an epileptic fit. And there's at least a literary tradition and to some extent, a larger tradition than that, which regards epilepsy as a kind of divine madness, as a kind of a mark of genius and spiritual significance. It's a romantic idea, no doubt, but nevertheless, uh, Golding has, has uh, exploited that convention, and Simon passes out in his epileptic fit. The two sacrificial victims of this novel are Piggy and Simon. So they've already been marked out right away. So then they're in their first little parlay, they uh, are discussing what to do. And it's during that that Ralph betrays the confidence of Piggy and tells all the others that his nickname is Piggy. And here's what happens immediately after that. Quote, A storm of laughter arose, and even the tiniest child joined in. For the moment... The boys were a closed circuit of sympathy with Piggy outside. The perfect recipe. How do we form a closed circuit of sympathy? Somebody's outside of it. The act of putting that person outside of it is the act that closes the circle of sympathy, that creates that kind of social camaraderie. The great question for the human race is how do we create circles of sympathy that are neither closed nor exclusionary, and the emotional significance of which is not dependent on a common object of contempt? That's the biggest question on this planet. I think that's it, you see? So here's what happens. Now they decide that they need a chief, 
the chief in the most primitive situation, the chief is selected exactly the way Piggy was selected. That is to say, the chief is, in the first instance, the victim whose singularity causes him to accrue enough social prestige, even though the act of expulsion is one that either fear or hate is directed toward the one being expelled. Nevertheless, whether it's fear or hate, that expelled one takes on a certain power, certain social prestige, is regarded as more powerful because of his singularity, and under certain circumstances can turn that into a position of leadership, a shaman or a high priest. The first leader in the primitive world is a kind of sacred executioner who is able to deflect the sacrificial violence that was directed toward him onto a surrogate victim and, and therefore retain his position as the socially prestigious figure without having to die for it. And so this is quite complicated and there's no time to get into this now, but it's interesting that in the story, on one page, we have this closed circuit of sympathy with Piggy outside and on the next page, we have them electing their chief and the two pages really belong together. If it were more anthropologically nuanced, which you don't, you couldn't do in a novel and have it be right. But it's it's not two events; it's really one event. But in any case, we didn't come here to read an anthropological text. You know, we just want a story that's reasonably revelatory of the the human condition. So they decide they need a chief. So uh, they decide to vote. These are British little British kids, you know, and they know that this is how you do it: you vote. And so, had they lived someplace else or 2,500 years ago, they might have realized that you did it by drawing straws. It doesn't matter. And in fact, their voting amounts to pretty much the same thing. Here's what Golding says. This toy of voting was almost as pleasing to them as the conch. Jack started to protest but the clamor changed from the general wish for a chief to an election by a claim of Ralph himself. None of the boys could have found good reason for this. What intelligence had been shown was traceable to Piggy, while the most obvious leader was Jack. But there was a stillness about Ralph as he sat that marked him. There was his size and attractive appearance, but most obscurely, yet most powerfully, there was the conch. The being who had blown that had sat waiting for them on the platform with the delicate thing balanced on his knees was set apart. Him with the shell, one of the boys yelled. Ralph, Ralph, let him be chief with the trumpet thing. Now, again, I don't want to do too much. I don't want to pick this story apart, but on page 20, Ralph says the word piggy, and there's a social consensus at piggy's expense. On page 21, Ralph cashes in on the social prestige of having blown the conch. And I would say if you put the two things together, the saying of the word piggy, and the pointing at a, at a child in derision, and the blowing of the conch, you get, if you put those as an overlay, and you saw them as uh, mirroring each other in terms of generating the social consensus and giving power 
what they're recognizing is that Ralph brought them together. And they're recognizing that because they say he's the one that blew the conch. But he brought them together also by saying piggy. Is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so here we are at the place where the, we started out, where's the man with the megaphone? And now we have elected the boy with the conch as the leader. So you see the theme is still working its way through. We need to notice the next thing. The first decision Ralph makes is to delegate authority to Jack. He gives Jack authority to lead the choir boys, who are now the hunters. There's an almost subliminal intent here, which is the dissipation of tensions between Ralph and Jack, which have become faintly perceptible. And Ralph does what all of us moderns would do. That is to say, clearly, Jack doesn't like what's going on. He feels like he should have some of the power. And so we think, well, that's only fair. Why not? You're good at leading and you've got this group of choir. Okay, you have it. And that's right. There's, in a way, one can't quibble with that. We see that it works because the text says, Jack and Ralph smiled at each other with shy liking after the delegation of power to Jack. Now, the modern premise is that resentment, which is what Jack feels, that resentment can be cured by eliminating the social structures towards which the resentful ones have directed their animus. That the resentment will be lessened by having the cultural apparatus that seems to be the object of the resentment broken down in accord with the demands of the, those who are resentful. Having failed to understand the source of resentment in mimetic desire, we try to cure it with a strategy that is destined to unleash even more vehement and violent forms of it as the social distinction between those who resent and those whom they resent vanishes. The source of that resentment is the very equality that we think is the solution to it. Now, this is not to say we shouldn't have equal structures. We should. But what, what it's to say is that the hierarchies that existed in all ancient cultures existed for very good reasons, and, and the anthropological data is perfectly clear. Ancient societies were terrified of equal structures because of the violent antagonisms that they created. That's why they would say, well, it's just much better to have the king's eldest son be the next king. It doesn't matter how stupid he is. It at least avoids a civil war, you see. It's better to have the eldest son receive all the land. How equitable is that? It's terribly inequitable. The ancients knew it was inequitable. They're not stupid. They just knew what would happen under the only other circumstances they can imagine, which is that it's spread out equally or it's up for grabs. And, and the collective experience was always that's a catastrophe. It's a recipe for fratricide, civil war, and all the rest of it. So all, all I'm saying is the Bible has destroyed those hierarchies in a way. We can't believe in them anymore. 
we know that they are artificial. Even if we can tolerate them, we know that they're artificial. We are all sons and daughters of God. We're equal in God's eyes and so on. Once you know that, then you know these structures have nothing inherently absolute about them. However, to live without them isn't any easier today than it was in the ancient world. And so if we're going to live without them, which we'll have to, we have to take other precautions. We have to learn to avoid the kind of catastrophe that the whole mimetic problem leads to once the hierarchies are no longer there. These things can be terribly complicated. There can be a social inequity which very much needs to be cured. At the same time, those who are the most vehement in demanding that it be cured may be doing so primarily because of resentment, which is to say we, that doesn't mean we should not cure the problem. We should cure the problem. Resentment's not going to be solved that way. Somebody says, you know, we're going to have to, this is not going to work and we have to change things. Okay, you can be chair of your own department. Is that going to solve it? It's not going to solve it. It just gets worse and worse. The problem of resentment cannot be solved at that level. And I, I'm just trying to point out here that Ralph is a very modern, just like all of us, he wants to solve it, and he thinks that that will solve it. And it makes it worse. I have to say over and over again, that's, I don't mean we should, we should keep in place uh, artificial, contrived hierarchies. We can't, but we better take precautions when we let them go. We have to take up the moral slack. Once we dispense with those hierarchies, the moral responsibility we inherit is enormously greater than that that people had to muster who lived under the protection of those hierarchies. If the theme is, where's the man with the megaphone? And then, of course, the question of the conch. What I want to do is, is bring to the foreground what no doubt was in the background for Golding. I have no, there's, to me, it's perfectly clear that Golding was drawing in part on book one and two of Homer's Iliad for some of his insights into this, into the early scenes of the of Lord of the Flies. And so I want to go back to look at that for a second. The staff, you know, was a very important piece of furniture, so to speak, in the Homeric world. It stood for order. And the staff belonged to the warlord, Agamemnon. And in debate, he shared it with his chieftains. And when they had it, everybody listened to them as though they were the warlord. Everybody knew that it was Agamemnon's by, by right, but that in order for the debate to be a real debate, this staff would be shared by all. It was the artifact that represented the ordering principle in the Greek campaign. So, and Homer plays with it masterfully in the Iliad. One of the first things that happens, and this goes back to Ralph sharing power with, with Jack, the first thing he does is that. The first thing in the Iliad is that Achilles bristles at the social superiority of Agamemnon because Agamemnon gets all the best loot from when they pillage these towns along the coast. Agamemnon gets first choice of all the loot. He gets first choice of all the slave women. Uh, and then the rest are 
you know, dispensed to the, to the chieftains and others. And finally, Achilles, who's the great warrior, says he's sick of it. He's sick of being second best to Agamemnon. And so you have this crisis of the doubles. The hierarchy is breaking down. One of the underlings has challenged his superior and demanded equality. Omer understood enough to know that if you want to get an epic poem going with some with a crisis in the Greek camp, the best way to do it is to introduce, is to destroy the hierarchy and introduce a, a, a set of doubles, which is what Shakespeare does all, he starts all his plays that way practically. So Agamemnon stands up to speak and he says, here is what I have to say, my oath upon it by this great staff. Achaean officers in council take it in hand by turns when they observe by the will of Zeus, do order in debate. It's the key to our social order, as the conch will be for a while in the Lord of the Flies before it is overridden by the, by the whole vortex of mimetic passions. Achilles, however, won't stand by it. He, he gets up and rails against Agamemnon for his superiority, and then the text says, he hurled the staff studded with golden nails before him on the ground. Then he sat down and fury filled Agamemnon looking across at him. Now, I don't think, I don't know if Homer had anything in mind here, but looking across at him, you get a, a visual picture of what has just happened in terms of authority in the Greek camp. Agam, uh, Achilles has announced that he is an equal with Agamemnon. And he has, in order to show that, he has taken the symbol of authority and order in the Greek world and thrown it on the ground. And so there you have the crisis. Shortly after that, because Homer's not finished with this symbol, he wants to show us something. Shortly after that, Agamemnon decides, because there's a lot of dissension in the, in the troops, and he says, I know how to create unanimity again. These are, great, these are soldiers lusting for war and all that. So I will just say to them, let's go home. I mean, who cares if Helen, if the, if the Trojans have Helen? What's it to us? You know, let's just go home. So he says to Odysseus, that's what I'll tell them. And immediately they'll say, no, we want to we rescue Helen and grab some of our own Trojan concubines and then go home. And so he, he stands up to tell them, not meaning to take them home at all, but just meaning to fire up their zeal. So he stands up to tell them, and it gives Homer an opportunity to give some of the background to the staff. Before them now arose Lord Agamemnon, holding the staff Hephaestus fashioned once and took pains fashioning. This idea of took pains fashioning is very, you know, in our, there's so many sort of cultural conventions in our world which we are, which we are willing to dispense with casually, not realizing the pain that our ancestors took in fashioning these structures that make possible a certain civility. And we thought, oh, well, now that we're civil, we don't need that kind of clumsiness and it cramps our, our freedom and so on. Exactly the same way. This is a staff Hephaestus fashioned once and took pains fashioning. It was a gift from him to the son of Kronos, lordly Zeus, who gave it 
to the bright pathfinder Hermes. Hermes handed it on in turn to Pelops, famous charioteer, Pelops to Atreus, and Atreus gave it to the sheep herder Thyestes, he to Agamemnon, king and lord of many islands of all Argos, the very same who, leaning on it now, spoke out among the Argives and lied to them and said this thing, let's go. And they all, and the reaction was exactly the opposite of what he thought. They dashed towards the ship saying, let's get out of here. And so it looks like the whole thing is going down the tubes. Now it gives Homer an opportunity to point out irony and then the darker aspects of the staff. As they dash to the ships, Athena tells Odysseus that he has to check the flight of these soldiers. So here's what happens. Odysseus broke into a run, wheeling close to the silent figure of Agamemnon, relieved him of his great dynastic staff, then ran toward the ships. And when he got there, he stood between the soldiers and the ships, and he held up the staff, and he stopped them, and he said, let there be one commander, one authority, holding his royal staff and precedence from Zeus, the son of crooked-minded Kronos, one to command the rest. Now, there are two deep ironies in these few lines. One is, Odysseus is saying, there's only one commander that should be able to hold this staff and order people to do what they're supposed to do, and that's somebody other than the guy who has it here before you right now. You see? He's saying nobody should be able to use this with ultimate authority except the one who just failed to. And now I'm using it with his authority in his stead so that you'll go back and listen to him. So it's filled with irony. But the deepest irony of all is earlier when uh, Homer had given the background of the, of the staff, he had said that Hephaestus gave it to, to Kronos, the, the, son of, the son of Kronos, Zeus, the son of Kronos, and then it came down the line. And when Odysseus uh, summarizes that very quickly, he says, this royal staff and precedence from Zeus, the son of crooked-minded Kronos, which is a little bit of a reference to the fact that Zeus usurped the power of Kronos and killed his father and took his place. So, in the very act of announcing that this, that authority must never be challenged, he cites the ultimate authority for challenging authority. Here's a parenthesis within a parenthesis. We're at Homer now. I want to go to Shakespeare for a second. Shakespeare, I don't think, read Homer, but he had access to these stories, secondary access to these stories. And it's interesting how closely the Odysseus scene here mirrors the one in Troilus and Cressida where, where Ulysses, which is the Roman name for Odysseus, gives a speech about what's the source of disorder in the Greek camp. And it's that speech that I've quoted so often in the past where he speaks of degree. Now, degree is just a Shakespearean word for hierarchy. You know, you say it's like uh, the third degree, fourth degree, first degree of some guild, say. But it's a Shakespearean term for any kind of hierarchy. So Ulysses says, Oh, when degree is shaken, which is the ladder of all high designs, the enterprise is sick. You take it away and it's gone. The social, the social structure, it's not because it's, a, it's divinely inspired. It's not divinely inspired particularly. Matter of fact, a lot of it has to be taken away in order to conform with, to the New Testament revelation. 
But if we take it away before we're willing to live by the Sermon on the Mount, we'll, we'll pay a, a terrible price, and we have paid a terrible price for it. So Ulysses says, Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility, and the rude son should strike his father dead. And so on. The speech goes on. But we're, we're, we're trying to track on the anthropological roots of the staff here for a second, but for, for both Odysseus and Homer and Ulysses and Shakespeare, the staff is the symbol of a hierarchical structure of order. And we live in a world in which such a structure can no longer be sustained in the way it could in the Middle Ages. And at the same time, we are not developing nearly as quickly as we should the moral and spiritual and psychological capacity to live without them. So the final thing I want to do on the staff Odysseus has halted this dash towards the ship. But it's one thing to stop a kind of runaway situation, a kind of social contagion. But it's another thing to turn it into social consensus. And he hasn't done that yet. Now, what's the recipe for doing that? Okay, he's standing there with the staff in his hand. Homer lobs him one. As he's standing there, the following takes place. Just as though, in a way, Golding lobbed Ralph one when he put right next to him this little fat kid with thick glasses and asthma and made it certain things possible. So here's Homer doing the same thing for Odysseus. All subsided except one man who still railed on alone, Thersites, a babbling soldier who had an impudent way with officers thinking himself amusing to the troops the most obnoxious rogue who went to Troy. Now he's marked. He's marked as the expendable one. You see, this happens in social settings. Bow-legged with one limping leg, shoulders rounded above his chest, he had a skull quite conical and mangy fuzz like mold. He's perfect. He's the, pharma, he's the pharmacos, you know, the pharmacon, the, the, the one that's expendable. Odious to Achilles, this man was, and to Odysseus, having yapped at both of them. But this time he berated Agamemnon, at whom, in fact, the troops were furious, lifting his voice and jeering. And now he starts to jeer at Agamemnon, but you see right away that all he's doing is chiming in on what Achilles has said. He's, he's mimicking Achilles. Achilles' challenge has inspired this wretched nothing of a soldier to make an absolutely identical challenge. This is the mimetic phenomenon. You see? The contagion catching people up in it. And so now he's yelling these same things. He's just mouthing Achilles' condemnations. Now we get the final unveiling of the staff. First of all, Odysseus verbally attacks Thersites, and then, at this he struck him sharply with his staff, on ribs and shoulders. The poor devil quailed 
and a welling tear fell from his eyes. A scarlet welt raised by the golden-studded staff sprang out upon his back. Then cowering down in fear and pain, he blinked like an imbecile and wiped his tears upon his arm. The soldiers, for all their irritation, fell to laughing at the man's disarray. Now, you see what's happened? It's perfect. Compare it to the following, quote, A storm of laughter arose, and even the tiniest child joined in. For the moment, the boys were a closed circuit of sympathy with Piggy outside. Exactly the same thing. But I hearken to it because the staff now is revealed as the bludgeoned. It becomes the staff when all one has to do is hold it up to remind everybody of what it might become if it's not respected in its official capacity. The crozier, it's all part of that sense of authority. Now, I must say that in the Christian world, that staff is a shepherd's staff. It's not a soldier's staff. It's a, it, even the symbol in the Christian world, uh, it's betrayed and, it's, and, and historically it was used as though it was just like a Homeric staff. But symbolically, it's, I know my sheep and my sheep know me because I call them by name. It's not an ordering in that sense, but it's a hearkening to a voice. So I would say only by perverting this, the symbol itself. Okay, I was reading these things. I was thinking about these things. I was putting all these notes together. And then last Saturday, as I do, lunchtime, I read the New York Times. I couldn't believe it. There it was, exactly what I've been thinking about. And here it is. I'm going to read to you. The title of the story is, Sometimes the Order of the Day is Just Maintaining Order. And it's a story about a brouhaha that developed in the House Banking Committee's uh, Whitewater hearing. And a week ago, Thursday night, the hearings had gotten raucous because there was a um, Clinton administration figure who's the, the aide to Hillary Rodham Clinton who was testifying, and one of the Republicans on the committee accused her of lying. And then he was accused of, of uh, badgering the witness, and then it got into this thing, you know. And uh, the next day, tempers were still still hot, and it got into it again. And so here's the story. I'm just going to read it to you. This is incredible. Just think of Homer, you know. Representative Maxine Waters, Democrat of California, stood on the floor of the House of Representatives this morning, raising her voice to denounce Representative Peter King, a Long Island Republican, with whom she had tangled the night before over whether he had been rude in questioning a female White House aide. Mr. King revived the issue today when Ms. Waters strode to the floor, interrupting the interrupted the proceedings to declare, quote, Men and women, the day is over when men can badger and intimidate women. Now, this could be a Tennessee Williams play. I mean, we have Mr. King and Ms. Waters. And now, guess who? Representative Carrie Meek, the Florida Democrat who was presiding at the time, raised her voice, slamming her gavel and trying to make Ms. Waters stop. So you have the Republican Mr. King and the, the Democratic Congresswoman Ms. Waters and the chairwoman of the committee, Ms. Meek. I mean, this is 
Who scripted this thing? I want to know. Anyway, she slams her gavel. I haven't mentioned gavel, you know, but gavel is part of the same. It shares all of that. It's the staff. The gavel came from something that did physical damage. So she's slamming the gavel. Amidst the rapping and the shouting, several representatives called for the sergeant-at-arms to remove Ms. Waters from the floor. But as the decibel level mounted and the gavel banged and banged, Ms. Waters marched sturdily on. Ms. Meeks, wrapping her gavel as she spoke, tried for order. You must suspend. You must suspend, gentlewoman. Finally, someone called for the mace. But there was some confusion as members tried to determine just what the mace was. Webster says the heavy medieval war club this is, I'm quoting the New York Times. Webster says the heavy medieval war club, often with a spiked metal head, but also it can also mean, quote, the staff used as a symbol of authority by certain officials. Right, said an aide, the second one. <laughs> then the aide found a description of it in her files, a ceremonial wand that consists of 13 rods of ebony bound together and topped with a silver globe and an American eagle, a sign of authority so powerful that the house rules say it should be applied. Notice the verb. It should be applied to, quote, unruly and turbulent members who need to be quieted down. Now, it's applied, and the way you apply it is you simply hold it up. It's like holding up the cross before apparition of the devil, you know. You hold up this mace, and that's it. The every everybody stops. And the question is, will everybody stop? The question at the end of this novel is, will they all stop when they see a British officer in his uniform? It's the same question. If you hold this up, will everybody stop yelling at each other? And we, can you return the situation to order? By the way, I... I was so intrigued by the story. Webster's has the order of these things in anthropological order. It begins with a heavy medieval war club, and the second one is a staff used as a symbol of authority. Perhaps, per, perhaps uh, characteristically, the American Heritage Dictionary has them in moral order. Let's say the first, its first definition, and this is what happens in history. You know, the the, the cleaner definition works its way to the front. And the ones with darker implications kind of get down closer to the footnotes. And then we finally forget it. And we think, oh, well, we can do without that. That's just a total... That we don't realize what it represents, you see, and what the kind of moral leap we'll have to make in order to live without it. Okay, last little thing here. The outburst had its roots in the evening before I told you about that. Uh, so the exchange, the next day's uh, exchange grew heated and was, when Ms. Waters jumped in, Mr. King said, You just had your chance. Why don't you just sit there? Ms. Waters, You're out of order. Mr. King, You're always out of order. Ms. Waters, You're out of order. Shut up. You see? Total doubles. The double situation is perfectly clear when they use the same words, exactly the same words. It's like a school children. Ms. Meek watched as the house turned into a tumble of disorder. This is a parable, by the way, of a lot of things. 
Finally, Ms. Meeks announced the verdict, sort of. The gentlewoman was out of order. The chair was about to direct the sergeant-at-arms to remove, dash, to present the mace. Okay, so let me, let's go back to the island. Jack jumps to his feet, and he says, We'll have rules, he cried excitedly. Lots of rules. Then, when any breaks them, and immediately the boys chime in. Whacko, bong, doink. You can see these little kids on the beach, you know, hitting with a stick, you know. But just look at this. This is really, I think, extraordinary. Because you think, oh, here's the problem. Everything I've said so far this morning sounds like I'm saying, okay, we better keep these rules. And I feel that, actually. I do feel that. However, remember, Paul said sin took advantage of the law. It's tremendous insight. Sin took advantage of the law. And that's exactly what is happening here. Jack, who is the real anarchist on the island, says, we're going to have rules. He's also the, the one who becomes the dictator. How can it be? The anarchist becomes the dictator. This is what we can't figure out. We figure, well, there must be some, there, there has to be a disconnect. There, there can't be a real linkage between Nietzsche and Hitler. How could there be a linkage between Nietzsche and Hitler? When Nietzsche said, we've got to get rid of all of this stuff, you know, and, and, and Hitler imposed this tyranny. But it's, this is it right here. We've got to have rules. Why does he want rules? In order to keep things ordered? No. In order to have a triggering device which will unleash the sacrificial violence against someone with moral impunity. Because then we'll have a certified rule breaker against which to, to unite. So that's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Another important thing to notice is the business of conscience. The thing that Nietzsche railed against so often in Christianity was conscience. And when you read about it in Nietzsche's writings, it has quotation marks, it's italicized. He snarls when he says the word conscience, the Christian conscience. That's what we have to get rid of, he said. We will never have a revival of proud pagan culture as long as we have this whimpering Christian conscience standing in our way. That's Nietzsche. Well, we tend to, th again, as I said earlier, we tend to think humanity is hardwired with these sensibilities. We don't realize that they're a product of enculturation and that they can be lost. A dissolving of the culture that instilled them in us will dissolve them. And Golding actually explores that in this story. And it takes the following form, and I think it's masterful. The little ones, the little ones, they're referred to as the little ones, that's the little kids who don't really take part in any decision making. It's the bigger kids that take part in that. And they just kind of shuffle around in the background of this story. They're sitting on the beach building sandcastles, which is a nice little metaphor in a way. And two of the big guys, Roger and Maurice, by the way, I didn't mention the fact they built a fire, the smoke from which would attract uh, those who might rescue them, and then it went out. When they built it, they set the island on fire, and then they finally got it going. It, uh, it went out because Jack and his hunters were supposed to keep it going, and they didn't, and so on. 
for the time being, uh, Roger and Maurice, who've been keeping the fire, come out of the forest. And here's what we learn. They were relieved from duty at the fire and had come down for a swim. Roger led the way straight through the sandcastles, kicking them over, burying the flowers, scattering the chosen stones. Maurice followed laughing and added to the destruction. Gratuitous destruction. Now, the little boys who were building the sandcastles. Percival began to whimper with an eyeful of sand, and Maurice hurried away. In his other life, Maurice had received chastisement for filling a younger eye with sand. Now, though there was no parent to let fall a heavy hand, Maurice still felt the unease of wrongdoing. At the back of his mind formed the uncertain outlines of an excuse. He muttered something about a swim and broke into a trot. The conscience, it's not exactly what it should be, but it's still there. Now, let's see the effects on these younger children. Percival finished his whimper and went on playing, for the tears had washed the sand away. Johnny, his playmate, watched him with china-blue eyes, then began to fling up sand in a shower, and presently Percival was crying again. You see, Golding is see, sees that imitative act. If we see it, we... So the next thing is, Percival had gone off crying, and Johnny was left in triumphant possession of the castle. He sat there, crooning to himself, throwing sand at an imaginary Percival. So the sickness is spreading. Now we have another little uh, vignette. Henry, another of the little ones, is absorbed watching tiny crabs uh, scurry across the beach. And Roger, who's up above him, behind him, sees this. Quote, Roger stooped, picked up a stone, aimed and threw it at Henry, but threw it to miss. The stone, that token of preposterous time, bounced five yards to Henry's right and fell into the water. Roger gathered a handful of stones and began to throw them. Yet there was a space around Henry, perhaps six yards in diameter, into which he dare not throw. Here, invisible yet strong, was the taboo of the old life. Round the squatting child was the protection of parents and school and policemen and the law. Roger's arm was conditioned by a civilization that knew nothing of him and was in ruin. That is incredible line. It reminds me of Eliot saying, the greatness of, of great literature cannot be judged solely on literary ground. This is great literature. That line, Roger's arm was conditioned by a civilization that knew nothing of him and was in ruin. Ask yourself this, how many young people does that line apply to today? But right in the middle of that, there is something that brings tears to your eyes almost, and that is a little, this little Henry is like Forrest Gump. Here's what it said. This side and that the stones fell, 
And Henry turned obediently, but always too late, to see the stones in the air. At last he saw one, and laughed, looking for the friend who was teasing him. Isn't that it? That innocence and assumption that everybody's friendly, that we have to somehow try to restore that experience for children. The presumption of good intentions and friendliness instead of the opposite presumption. Jack finds different colored clay on the island and he realizes that you can put it on your face and and make a a kind of mask or can color your face with this clay. And he thinks to himself, well, as a hunter, I'd better camouflage my face. But he then starts to paint it up in primitive terms. So it's Jack reverting to the primitive. Uh, Golding says, quote, Jack planned his new face. At the same time, Piggy is suggesting that they take some sticks and make a sundial so they'll know what time it is, which is a little thing, but I think it's tremendously important, and it's so characteristic of, of Piggy. The sundial would allow them to order their lives. You know, Piggy often will say, it's always tea time. For Piggy, tea time is the kind of the pivot of the whole day. It's before tea time, or it's almost tea time, or doggone, I think it's past tea time. And there's no tea on the island, they don't have any tea. But the point is, it's the marker that gives some kind of reference point. And Piggy wants to restore these reference points. And again, we don't realize the significance of these things. In the Dark Ages, the first thing that the monasteries did when they began to pull what was later to become Western civilization out of the bog of the Dark Ages, the first thing they did in that enterprise was to build a bell tower and put a bell in it and ring it on the canonical hours at least and more often than not on the hour. In other words, to give order to the day. And that ringing of the bell became Western civilization. You have to say that, that the biblical revelation that, that is behind that is really it. But at a, at a level of social structure, you have to say it starts with the bell. And at the very moment that Jack wants to paint his face and go back into the Dark Ages, Piggy wants to make a sundial in order to keep from going back into the Dark Ages. He wants to keep some kind of order. And again, all of this is so unbelievably providential because there was a review of this new book out that's called The Rape of Europa, which is about what the Nazis did to the art treasures of the Western world uh, during their rise and during the war. And there was a picture, and here's what the caption underneath the picture says. And you can see all these bells, huge bronze bells. 5,000 bells from all over Europe stolen by the Nazis during World War II awaiting disposition in Hamburg. Well, I mean, it's just a, it's a symbol, you see. It, it's a parable of the, what I'm saying. What did the Nazis do? They take the bells away. Why? Because they want to turn them into swords, so to speak. So I would say the old the Isaiah thing of swords into plowshares, maybe it's, maybe it's not quite as good as it could be because swords into plowshares implies that there's a kind of materialism in that metaphor and a kind of technological feature to that metaphor 
that maybe doesn't really go to the heart of the cultural problem so much. You, you know, a Marxist analysis could use the swords and plowshares metaphor with no problem. It's, it's materialistic enough and technological enough. Maybe the real one, I mean, I don't want to correct Isaiah, but maybe the real one should be, should be swords into bells, you see. Cultural progress is made when you turn your swords and your weaponry into bells and order the day and order the world. And there's regression when you take your bells like the Nazis did and you turn them into tanks. And that's the world we live in. We're always going in one direction or another. And as soon as we stop, the, the slide into the regressive one is there. We must always be turning swords into bells because if we stop, it won't be long before we're turning bells into swords, just like the Nazis did. So I'm here to cheer for um, Piggy in that exchange. He's absolutely right. It was perfect. And Golding is so perceptive when he just introduces this one little thing about why don't we make a sundial? What good would a sundial do? The others could have said, look, what does it matter if it's four o'clock? What does four o'clock mean? It's totally irrelevant. And of course it is. At one level, it's irrelevant. Except if at four o'clock every day, we pause and do something, whatever it is, have tea, have prayer, you know, take care of a certain business, that's fine. But it's the ordering of it, the civilizing of it. Okay, before we leave the boys uh, kicking sand in their each other's face and so on, when they find out the fire has gone out, the ship is on the horizon, and Ralph looks up and there's no signal fire. It has been allowed to go out by Jack and his hunters. And so Ralph and three other kids go scrambling up the mountain to see if they can get the fire going before the ship is gone. And here's what we're told. Behind the four boys, the smoke moved gently along the horizon, the smoke of the ship going out of sight. And on the beach, Henry and Johnny were throwing sand at Percival, who was crying quietly again. So you just get a little footnote of that earlier scene and where it's, how it continues to descend into, into what it will become later on. At that, the hunters come out of the forest carrying the, the carcass of a pig they have just killed, chanting, kill the pig, cut her throat, spill her blood. Kill the pig, cut her throat, spill her blood. One thing to notice, I said when I was doing the Baki, I got in a lot of trouble. I was completely politically incorrect when I was talking about the Baki because it's all women doing this and, and so on. And I said, well, look, when we get to the Lord of the Flies, you will see that it's all boys, it's all male, uh, the savagery is all on their part. And there's another part of that parallel, and that is that the sacrificial violence of the women uh, in, in the Baki is vented against a man, against the king, Pentheus, who, who, who is a man. In this story, there's nobody but boys, so the sacrificial violence, when it gets to the human, is always ex vented against one of the boys. However, symbolically, it's the feminine. This pig, the, when they kill the pig, it's always a sow, and when they kill it, the emphasis on the feminine is very, very strong. She, she, her, and in fact, the most graphic of the killings, which we'll get to later, is one in which the sexual aspect of the killing is very obvious. Clearly, uh, Golding is depicting something in which the lust 
for sacrificial blood is not completely separated from a maddened sexual lust. They're asked to explain how they did it, and they begin to explain it with great relish. And as they explain the killing of this pig, they begin, as children do, to act out how it was. And everybody gets excited, and they kind of come up out of their seats, so to speak. They come alive. They stand up. They start moving in a circle. And then finally, Maurice gets completely compelled by this spontaneous ritual reenactment of the killing. And here's how Golding has it. Then Maurice pretended to be the pig and ran squealing into the center. And the hunters, circling still, pretended to beat him. As they danced, they sang, Kill the pig, cut her throat, bash her in. Kill the pig, cut her throat, bash her in. So this is Golding. His anthropological perceptions are quite good here. He sees the ritual reenactment of this. He doesn't see that it begins with human violence and then goes to animal violence. Uh, but in fact, when it does, when it reverts, it often goes through an animal violence stage or a, or a surrogate stage before it gets to human sacrifice. Ralph watched them, envious and resentful, because now they're, they're he-men now, see? And they've had this marvelous basic primal experience, and they're bragging about it. He's envious and resentful. Not until they flagged and the chant died away did he speak. I'm calling an assembly, he said. Now, there you have it. What he was just witnessing was an assembly. He was just witnessing the gathering of the old Anthropos. And now he says, I'm going to call an assembly. What he has in mind is something else, some other kind of assembly, but there was one already. And the reason he wants to call an assembly is because he didn't like the looks of that one. Those are the two cultural forms. Can we have an assembly that doesn't have this somewhere at the dark heart of it? And that's, I think, the issue of, the, of this novel.